Well, thank you, thank you very much. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I did to deserve this, but um, uh, I, I was exactly as described, um, uh, grabbed as soon as I'd uh, done one previous session of uh, chairing, and because this was nine months away, obviously that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but it's finally come round. Um, I, am, I am very much from outside higher education. The IFS does... I think it's one of the interesting things we might hear about. The IFS does research, which is very similar to uh, what happens in university economics departments, as well as what you might see on uh, the Today programme. We do publish in the top uh, journals and would be a very good economics department if we were one. Uh, so there is higher education research, as it were, going on outside higher education, which is something that I think is quite interesting. And we work, of course, on the finance of uh, higher education and have done quite a lot of work on student fees uh, and so on. But that is pretty much it as far as my relationship to this is uh, concerned. So I've been fascinated to read the think pieces here and also to reflect, as it were, on the different languages that we uh, use in different parts of the uh, social sciences. Um, but that's all I'm going to say by way of introduction, other than to say we have got five very brave people who are going to cover a fantastically wide range of stuff in 10 minutes each. And I think my main job is to make sure it is 10 minutes each uh, that, they, uh, that they do that in. We're going to do this in two chunks. Um, so we're going to have Marcia Devlin, Bruce McFarlane and Mary Stewart, uh, one after another, doing 10 minutes each. And then we'll have 20 minutes for... Uh, discussion and comment and questions from the floor, and then we'll move on to Rajni Nadu and Jeroen Hushman, or something like that, sorry. Who will do the, se the, the second half, and then we'll have uh, time for questions uh, at the end. So, um, Marcia, do you want to kick off? Thank you very much. Um, I've travelled for 34 hours to get here, uh, and I did want to say thank you very much to the Society, both for electing me a lifelong fellow and for the invitation uh, to be here today. I now have nine minutes and 42 seconds to get through <laughs> my six points. Now, I have to click things. That's me. I'm going to talk about six things, so here's the first one. That saves me a few seconds. One important defining feature of the last 50 years of research in learning, teaching and curriculum, which is what I've been asked to speak to you about, is the context of this research has changed so fundamentally. In 2015, we find ourselves in the trajectory predict predicted by Chow and others of higher education expansion from elite through mass to universal access. A massified system has meant not only are there more students, but also alongside the internationalisation of higher education, that students are, far, are from a far wider range of social and cultural backgrounds than the cohort who attended Western universities 50 years ago. This has changed research into learning, teaching and curriculum in universities significantly and irreversibly. <clears throat> Naturally, this research has increasingly focused on how best to teach and assess students from a range of diverse backgrounds. <clears throat> Some research effort has been devoted to understanding the experiences, perspectives and needs of so-called non-traditional and international students in a massified internationalised system and to informing relevant policy and practice within institutions and beyond. The focus has increasingly been to facilitate achievement for all students, not just for those with the social, cultural and English language capital, to understand the tacit expectations of them and to respond accordingly. Over the past 50 years, a plethora of learning theories, learning models, learning concepts and learning ideas have underpinned higher education research in learning, teaching and curriculum. 
This is the fun part of the um, presentation, and I'm going to use some learning theory. I have crunchy bar, chocolate. What I'd like you to do is very quickly, because I've only got about seven minutes left, take out a piece of paper, and you all have one, a little sticky note, and write down three learning concepts, ideas, or theories. Or if you don't want to write them down, think of them in your head. But actually, I will need evidence, so you'll need to write them down. Three, any three, learning idea, learning concept, a learning theory, a learning model. There is chocolate at stake. <laughs> Ten seconds left. Nine, eight, seven, six. They don't have to be good ones, just any ones. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. Pens down. Okay. Some of the uh, learning ideas and theories that have had some currency at one time or another over the past 50 years include in no particular order. When I call out your learning theory idea, tick it off. If I call out all three, you must shout out bingo. And then you'll get the chocolate. Deep and surface learning. Three. You need three, not one. <laughs> Academics. I'll start again. Deep and surface learning. Tick that off. Okay, but you've still got to get another two. Vygotsky zone of proximal development. I love that one. <laughs> Cognitive theory. Andragogy. Problem-based learning. You've got it! Well done. At the end of my talk, the second crunchy goes to the person who correctly comes and tells me what learning theory I just used. <laughs> Problem-based learning, inquiry learning, Bloom's taxonomy, cultural historical activity theory, metacognition, Gardner's multiple intelligences, phenomenography, constructivism, learning styles, behaviourist theory, transformative learning theory, cooperative learning, motivational and humanist theories, brain-friendly learning and sociocultural theories. There are many more, but this list is illustrative of the wide range and the number of those considered appropriate at one time or another over the past five decades. It strikes me like, uh, like religion. These theories and ideas have their believers and non-believers, their evangelists and critics, their worshippers, if you will, and their naysayers. It also strikes me that, uh, like fashion, some of them come back again and come into vogue at a later time. As I reflect on this particular observation, I now understand why, despite my increasing experience in research in higher education over the years, I have a growing difficulty in answering the question from new researchers. Marcia, what's the best theory to use in higher education research? The third point, discipline... Oh, wrong way. Discipline-based higher education research. There has been an explosion in this in the last 50 years. I'm referring to the growth in work by colleagues in the disciplines of chemistry, engineering, humanities, media, nursing, psychology, just to name a few disciplines with which I've been involved, to explore and better understand learning, teaching and curriculum in their particular neck of the academic woods. If it is difficult to keep up with generic higher education research, it is impossible to track specialised work of this kind across the disciplines. That said, discipline-based higher education research has allowed those in specific discipline fields to benefit from this focused and specialised work. This has also brought immeasurable benefit to higher education policy and practice more broadly, as well as to research, with an influx of additional learning theories and ideas, the application of existing theory within discipline contexts, as well as an increased breadth and depth of methods that are deployed to conduct research. 
One example is some of the increased rigour in higher education quasi-experimental and experimental research that has come about through the application of the scientific method. My fourth topic, research collaborations. These have changed considerably over the past half century. My own experience highlights some of these shifts. My first collaborative higher education research experience was, was with a senior academic with whom I'd worked for a number of years in the same institution, who kindly offered me an opportunity to join an experienced research team and then mentored me. This is the traditional way. My most recent is a current collaboration with a junior colleague who lives on the other side of Australia, five hours flight away, whom I met online via social media. We follow each other on Twitter and read each other's blogs, and with whom I work through email to pull together a geographically dispersed research team with complementary skills and submit a successful grant application. Our team is multidisciplinary, meets by teleconference, has debates and makes decisions by email and engages with our communities via social media. This story is increasingly repeated across countries, languages, disciplines and worldviews. Dissemination and impact. The role of social and other new media has fundamentally changed, not only the way research teams are formed and work, as I've just illustrated, but also the way in which research outcomes are shared, discussed, understood and implemented to facilitate change in policy and practice. No longer the purview of an elite few who undertake the research and a slightly larger group of elite few who read the findings in dense and terribly clever academic journals. Higher education research findings have increasingly reached the masses over time. In the case of research into learning, teaching and curriculum, this is particularly welcome as it has relevance to all academics who teach whatever their location or discipline. Sorry. The impact of research depends in large part on dissemination and uptake. There will be an increasing need to cut through, to use a marketing colleague's term, the volume and noise of the internet to reach those who need to be reached to change policy and practice. Those who do so will be those with sophisticated understandings of how to select, collect, curate disparate findings, how to translate findings written in academic ease or in the style and language familiar to one discipline into plain English and those with the know-how to market to particular audiences and to do so in a digital context. Finally, future priorities. Given the complexity I've outlined to date, one of the major priorities for the future is to ensure that higher education research on learning, teaching and curriculum is meaningful and useful to the many and not just the few. As well as more thinking about facilitating better uptake of findings, this might also necessitate a focus in the immediate future on so-called 21st century learning in higher education. This would include further exploration of how higher education can assist students and graduates to experience success and fulfilment in an increasingly digital and global age, such as through digital and media literacy, deep cross-cultural and multicultural understandings and the ability to innovate. Thank you.